If you've been here recently, you know we've been going through the book of Acts. And if you um, haven't caught up with all those, you can get them on the podcast and uh, backtrack through all of those. This morning, uh, we're in Acts chapter 15, but we're only a few verses out of Acts chapter 15, which we'll get to as we go through. And the topic is God works through conflict. Now, I... I reckon I've got enough material to go for about 10 hours. Not that I'm going to, but God can work through conflict. You know, they used to say that the two certainties in life used to be death and taxes. You would live your three score and ten, pay your share of tax, and then you would pass away. Well, if you're a large multi-international company an underworld crime figure, or live in Greece, tax is optional. I think the two certainties in life now should be death and conflict. Conflict exists between countries. It exists between races. It exists between sporting fans, political parties, workplaces, churches, neighbours and possibly the worst place of all, in the family home. I was looking through the paper a while back and in the last state government budget, the government allocated $1.9 billion, that's billion with a B, billion dollars, to help tackle conflict in the family home. It's deemed to be that significant an issue. You know, I don't know if you've seen the movie Castaway, um, but the main character ends up on a deserted island with a few remnants of a shipping container and the things that fell out of it. And he befriends a soccer ball. And even at the end of that movie, he's in conflict with that ball. So I guess you can't go anywhere and not have conflict. While we're on the topic of saying thank you, I would like to thank the people in this church that have role-modelled healthy conflict to me. It's not an easy thing to do. Yet my experiences with conflict are more often than not it's been done badly. And in many cases, it's due to anger. If you want to witness conflict done badly, just insert some anger. Anger has the potential to turn a small conflict into a large conflict very quickly. Anger during conflict makes rational people do and say irrational things. In fact, in my life, I've never seen anger done in a positive manner. I've never seen it done in a healthy way. My only experience with anger has been negative and divisive. A word of warning. If you have your children living in your family home, be mindful of how you do conflict. I know people my age and even older who still talk about being frightened of how conflict was done in their family home. And some of them still live with the effects of that today. The other other consequence of how you see conflict done in your family home will probably be how you grow up to do conflict later in your life. 
something else we can blame our parents for. Conflict within marriage was described to me once like this, a game of tennis. At each end, you have the two players, each with a racket. One serves the ball, the other returns the serve. Then the rallies begin. This can go on for as long as you both keep hitting the ball over the net, yet it can be stopped by one person at any time. How you do conflict, or in some cases avoid conflict, will affect your relationships with the people around you. I know, sorry, excuse me. I know of people that certain uh, topics are off limits to discuss, or they just won't have the conversation with someone because of the fallout of that. Your ability to do conflict can have you as a bridge builder or a wall builder. Bridge builders want to maintain a connection. They want to maintain the connection between you and them. They want the lines of communication open. You have heard the term, I'm sure, people, they, they, term, they keep burning their bridges. Bridge builders are the opposite of that. They want to resolve the conflict. The ongoing relationship is important to them and they want to connect, keep that connection. War builders build walls during conflict. They erect a wall between you and them. Sometimes you can see it brick by brick. And this wall can stand for an hour, a day, a week, and in some cases it's never removed. I've been told of a couple who during conflict can go a week or so without talking to each other. But what they do is communicate through their children. The husband, example, the husband would say to his daughter, ask your mother to pass the TV remote. (laughs) Stupid as it sounds, it's true. Conflict with bridge builders can have no adverse effect on your relationship. And in some cases it can strengthen them. Conflict with wall builders can have lifelong effects that go on for a long time and sometimes never end. Around the turn of of the century, a wealthy but unsophisticated oil tycoon from Texas made his first trip to Europe and he was on a ship, as you did in those days. The first night at dinner, he found himself seated next to a stranger, a Frenchman, who dutifully nodded and said, Bon Appetit. Thinking the man was introducing himself, he replied, Barnhouse. For several days, this ritual was repeated. The Frenchman would nod and say, Bon Appetit. Then the Texan would smile and reply, Barnhouse. A little louder and a little more distinctly than the first, than the time before. One afternoon, Mr. Barnhouse mentioned to another passenger who set the oil baron straight. You've got it all wrong, he said. He wasn't introducing himself. Bon appetit is the French way of telling you to enjoy your meal. Needless to say, Barnhouse was terribly embarrassed and determined to make things right. At dinner that evening, 
The Texan came in, nodded to the Frenchman and said, Bon appetit. The Frenchman rose and answered, Barn house. <laughs> Many years ago, I was given a great bit of advice from someone. And while it's not a verse out of the Bible, the principle is very biblical. And this is what they told me. Seek first to understand before being understood. A few years back I had a job and the job went for around five months and for three and a half months of that job conflict reigned. Nearly every day without fail there would be some conflict on that job site. And it got to the point where I didn't know what to do. So there was an architect involved, so I thought I will call him. So I rang him, told him the situation, and his response was, I'm a friend of the family, but the lady doesn't listen to me either, so you're on your own. (laughs) So that was his way of helping me. During one unpleasant discussion one morning, this came to my mind, seek first to understand before being understood. And after I'd listened to the lady air some of her grievance, I asked her this question, what is it you want from me? One of the things that perturbed her and surprised me was that when we get to the job in the morning at 10 to 7, that I didn't come into the house and say good morning to her and shoot the breeze, whatever was going on for the day. Since we were working on a detached building on the outside of the property and on the outside of the house, I had no reason to enter the house. The curtains were generally drawn. It was just not the done thing, in my opinion. (coughs) Since it was early, I thought I'll keep out of her hair, you know. Most people don't want scruffy tradesmen at 7am in their house, I can tell you that. But this lady, that's what she wanted, And I didn't know that until I asked her what is it she wanted from me. Whilst this is not what I would have chosen to do, it did have some value to this lady. And doing this and some other small items that she requested made a significant difference in resolving that conflict. Seek first to understand before being understood. If I'd have applied that earlier it may have changed the the whole job and the conflict that was going on. In Proverbs 18.2 it says, and this was written by a very wise man named Solomon, this is what he said, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Applying this principle in your life can significantly change the way you deal with conflicts in your life. The verses today deal with dealing with conflict. The first conflict in Acts 15, which if you'd like to turn up, Acts chapter 15, and I'll read the first verse, couple of verses, 1 to 3. The first conflict we look at this morning is a theological conflict within a church environment. And the second conflict we will look at is a conflict over an opinion. Acts 15, 1-3, and this is what it says. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, 
and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they were told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. At this point in Acts, the church is in its infancy and it's about 20 years after Pentecost. Paul had just completed his first missionary journey and churches are just getting established. But the inevitable happens. Conflict arises and not over a trivial matter. This was about eternal life, Christ's sufficiency in dying on the cross for each of us. From my reading and understanding and what I've heard along my life, most conflicts within church are not like this. Acts 15.1 is about the very basis of the Christian church. It's a very important issue at stake. But church conflict is generally about music or chairs, starting times or other far less important matters. Here is a hypothetical discussion between two Christians disagreeing about music. You know, I think when we worship on a Sunday morning we shouldn't clap because Sunday morning ought to be a time of reverence. The other Christian said, no, I think Sunday morning ought to be a time of joy and rejoicing in the Lord. Well, the first man says, the Bible says God's house is a house of prayer. Yes, the other man said, but the Bible also says Sunday is a time of celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Yes, says the first man, but the Bible still but says, be still and know that I am God. The other man says, it also says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Who's right? Who's wrong? They're both right, aren't they? But the problem arises not when we disagree, but when we become disagreeable. When we become disagreeable over these things. You will not agree with everyone all of the time in this church. It's not going to happen. And if you choose to leave this church on that basis, you will go to another church where you also find someone not to agree with. And so on and on it can go. The matter at the start of Acts 15 is not a trivial matter. It is about the fundamental basis of the Christian faith, that Christ dying on the cross for you and I is enough. It's not that Christ died on the cross and follow the law of Moses. It's not Christ died on the cross and do good works. It's not Christ and anything else. If you are a member of this church or attend another church and you hear that, then you should respectfully challenge that that is not correct. That statement should never be left unchallenged. Attempting to mix the law and grace will not work. Nothing you can do, sorry, 
Nothing you can do will earn your way to heaven. It is a gift from Christ. All we can do is accept that gift. They are the facts according to God's word. Herein lies the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says you need to perform a task or a ritual or do something to earn your right. In Romans 10.9 it says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Full stop. So how did the churches resolve their problem? First of all, the church in Antioch sent a delegation to help seek a solution. The delegates met with the church leaders to give their reports and set another date to continue the discussion. Paul and Barnabas gave their report. James summarised reports and drew up a decision. Everybody, and I says here, everyone agreed to abide by the decision. The council sent a letter to the delegates back to Antioch to report the decision. This is a wise way to confront conflict. The problem was confronted. All sides were given a hearing. The leaders of the church were present and made the wise decision. Then the people abided by the by the decision and that was the end of that conflict. The second conflict we look at this morning is a different one altogether. Paul and Barnabas, as they were about to embark on their second missionary journey, on their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas set off together with a helper named John. And in Acts 13 it says, John left them to return to Jerusalem. No reason given. This is what it says. When Paul and Barnabas when Paul and Barnabas discussed their second journey, this is what it says in Acts fifteen, thirty-six to forty-one. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilis, not sure how you say that one, strengthening the churches. This is what it said in verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. This is the instance of Barnabas' patience with the failures of others. You know, he was known as the son of encouragement. He wants to give John Mark another chance and he's willing to do it right now. Paul disagrees. The disagreement is so deep and it cannot be resolved. And a friendship that goes back 15 years choose to part company, neither willing to yield. Which one was right? Well, Luke doesn't give any insight to this. The only inkling that he gives is that the church inclined to side with Paul and with Paul 
Because in Acts 15.40 it says that Paul and Silas were commended by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. It doesn't say this about the departure of Barnabas and John Mark. Now this may be a long bow to draw, but this is raised by commentators as a possible hint. But Luke gives little else away. He doesn't, not, he doesn't make either out to be the guilty party. The impression, the impression I get is you've got two good men who cannot agree. Sometime before this separation between Barnabas and Paul, there had been another run-in at Antioch of a much more serious kind. Peter had come down from Antioch, from Jerusalem, and was enjoying his Christian freedom by eating with the Gentile Christians. But this did not sit well with some. The response of Peter and the other Jews, and even Barnabas, was unacceptable to Paul. In Galatians 2, 11, 14, this is what it says about this. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, the behaviour of Peter and Barnabas amounted to a new commandment to the Gentiles that they must virtually become Jews. This has a familiar sound to it, doesn't it? The truth of the gospel is at stake here. There are actions that so contradict the truth of the gospel that cannot be tolerated. Paul knew that when truth goes, the gospel goes. And when the gospel goes, the souls of men perish. This was Paul's great strength. He never forgot that truth issues are ultimately people issues. What do we learn from this? Great saints can go astray, whether Barnabas or Paul, and the biographies that are in the Bible show us that our heroes have weaknesses and strengths. We can be thankful that the Bible is so honest in the betrayal of these people. Ministry in church is made up of many judgment calls. In fact, life is made up of many judgment calls. What I mean by a judgment call is a decision that has no specific rule or is explicit in the Bible to your specific circumstances. There is no passage in the scripture that says this. When a young missionary has forsaken the work of the first journey, you shall give him a second chance after 18 months of faithful service. No biblical text says not to either. Instead, we have the principles that say, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And then we have the principles which say, the leaders of the church should be above reproach and well-tested. One principle stresses the glory of God's mercy. 
Another principle stresses the glory of God's calling. Some of our decisions are governed by explicit biblical commands. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. But most of our decisions in life are an effort to apply biblical principles to the situations that the Bible does not deal with in those terms. And the problem is that when we differ on how to do this, what happens then? In Matthew Henry's commentary, he calls these points of prudence. And this is what he says. Even those that are united to one and the same Jesus and sanctified by one and the same spirit have different apprehensions, different opinions, different views and different sentiments in points of judgment. It will be so while we are in this state of darkness and imperfection. We shall never be all of one mind till we come to heaven where light and love are perfect. Acts 15.38, the word Luke uses to describe Paul's conviction that Mark should not go fits this idea. It says, literally, but Paul did not count it fitting or proper to take along one who had withdrawn. It was an issue of spiritual judgment, a call of wisdom. But what does wisdom dictate in a choice like this? Barnabas seemed to focus on the need and the potential of Mark. Paul seemed to focus on the demands and the potential larger cause of the gospel and the mission ahead. You know, this may not be at all a bad thing. Out of the result of this, two mission trips occurred. And maybe this explains why the many different denominations of Christian churches we have today. Most of our life and ministry is made up of those kinds of decisions. The application of biblical principles to situations not explicitly dealt with in the Bible. And therefore, complete agreements in these will not happen in the body of Christ until no longer we see through a glass darkly. And I suggest sometimes that we may, not, we may assume that having different strategies on these things may not always be a bad thing. Barnabas, who was known as an encourager, can may be vulnerable to minimising the importance of truth for the sake of a relationship. Their very strength, the inclination to stand for people in this very thing, can lead to a weakness. And I think that's what happened in Galatians 2. Why did Paul not get sucked into the the hypocrisy? I'll have a drink, I think. And Barnabas did. Barnabas was the older, more experienced Christian. I suspect it was because Paul did not feel the same emotional empathy with the Jews that Barnabas did. Paul didn't feel the same emotions that Barnabas must have felt from his Jerusalem brothers. Paul's ministry was so gospel-centred that the emotions and the opinions of other people did not have the same importance to him that they did for Barnabas. Paul talks, and this is what he says, even if we 
or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. Am I now seeking the favour of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still pleasing men, I should not be a servant of Christ. This kind of talk did not make Paul the same son of encouragement that Barnabas was. But it did keep the gospel pure for another hundred generations of Gentile believers. And Barnabas, with all his warmth and patience with people, was sucked into an error that comprised the truth of the gospel. Every strength is vulnerable to its corresponding weakness. Diverse people in the body of Christ need each other's different strengths. I find it fascinating when I read through this that the beginning of Paul's Christian life when no one would take a risk on his behalf, Barnabas came forward. Barnabas came forward and saved him from the, for the cause of Christ. Yet many years later, when Barnabas was falling away from the truth, Paul came forward and saved him for the cause. These men needed each other's different strengths. Can either of these men boast over the other? I don't think so. God has chosen to build a community of diverse people. His aim is not that all the Barnabases become Pauls or that all the Pauls become Barnabases. His aim is that they help each other fight the fight of faith and endure to the end. His aim is that when one is weak, the other be strong. When the strength of one makes him vulnerable to a corresponding weakness, the other be there with the balancing virtue. And this is the aim, that we should not envy or resent each other, but rejoice in the wisdom of the Spirit who creates, uses and moulds according to his choosing. None of us should rest on our laurels. None of us should say, well, I know I once had a marvellous experience with God, so I'm safe and secure from now on. Rather, we should say with Jesus... Let us watch and pray that we not fall into temptation. Let us put on the whole armour of God. Past experiences and past useful, use, usefulness are no guarantee for future obedience. The Christian life is a race to be run and finished, a fight to be fought and won and a faith to be kept to the very end. There is no place for coasting or drifting. In this Paul excelled. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified, forgetting those things which lie behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I press on forward towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, the cause of God will triumph through all the weaknesses and failures of his people. There are at least three evidences of this from the life of Barnabas and Paul. First, in 1 Corinthians 9.6. Sometime later, after separating from Barnabas, Paul refers to Barnabas as a fellow worker who shares his life and labour. The breach has been healed. The second one is in 2 Timothy 4.11, where Paul says to Timothy, 
Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful in serving me. Was it Paul's tough rebuke or Barnabas's tender patience that saved Mark for the cause of the gospel? Or could it have been both? Either case, the Lord brought victory out of conflict. And Mark not only became useful to Paul, but also served as Peter's interpreter and wrote the second gospel, the gospel according to Mark. God triumphs even through the failures of his people. When the contention was not solved, neither missionary quit the ministry. Instead, they chose new partners and went on with the ministry of the gospel. And out of one faltering missionary journey, two emerged. And God has done this again and again throughout history. Out of the ashes of failure, he has fanned a few embers into life to keep the fire burning for his glory. The defeats of God's people are always temporary. The cause of God will triumph through all the weaknesses and failures of his people. The challenge for our church is this, is can the Barnabases of this church work with the Pauls of this church? Are you willing to put aside your preferences for God's glory? On matters of opinion and judgment calls, will you be willing to work with others of differing opinions? I can't make you do it and you can't make me do it. It's your call. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that when we come and open your word that we see there is an answer for conflict and how it should be dealt with. We thank you that you show your servants in the true light of who they were and their strengths and weaknesses. I pray as we as a church as we move forward in the things that we need to do. I pray that you'll help us to be gracious to each other. I pray that the Pauls will accept the Barnabases and the Barnabases will accept the Pauls. I pray that you'll help us to work through our conflict in the healthy way, in the way that you would have us to do this so that we can further your kingdom and for your glory in everything that we do here. Amen.